Hey, all, welcome to RUF. Uh, it's good to be with you tonight on this uh, dry Wednesday as opposed to last week. Um, and I want to say, my name is Simon Stokes. I'm the RUF campus minister here. If you've never been here, welcome. Um, I'm glad that you're here with us tonight. If you ever want to meet and talk about Christianity or talk about your life um, or talk about just kind of whatever you want to talk about, I'm happy to do that. I would love to meet with you and talk with you, um, to listen and to be sad with you over things that are sad, to rejoice with you over things that are worth rejoicing over, uh, to help you bear burdens, whatever way I can. I'm here to help and be a part of your life any way you want me to. So if you want to meet, let me know. I'm always up for it. Um, I had someone ask me recently, what does it mean to be involved in RAF? What does it take to be involved in RAF? Uh, and there's a really intense initiation ceremony, uh, branding. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm joking. Uh, it does not take much. <laughs> Didn't think I'd go there, but I did. Uh, <laughs> I would say, what does it mean? Uh, come to our stuff. <laughs> Join a community group. Um, get our, jump in our group me, RUF UNC group me. Uh, but be involved. Love people. Um, bring your friends if you like this. Uh, our goal with RUF is not that everyone would kind of uh, sell everything they have and become a part of RUF. But our goal is actually that you would just love Jesus and love other people. Um, and if you're doing that, then, you know, goal met, right? And so we want to help you do that. And I, we think the best way for you to do that is to come to things like large group, to join a community group, to get lunch with someone and actually talk about what's going on in your life and to pray together. Um, so that's, I think, what it means to be involved in RUF. And I hope to, that you do. So this uh, semester we're going through the Psalms. Uh, tonight we're in Psalm 29. Uh, I, I don't know why I did three Psalms in the 20s, but they're just so good. I mean, it's, it's so hard to pick between the Psalms because they're all amazing and they're scripture. Um, but uh, we're in Psalm 29 tonight talking about what does it mean that God is a king? What does it mean that he's glorious and holy and he's with us? And how does that Psalm invite us into that? So I'm going to read Psalm 29. I'll pray for us and we'll get started. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Let me pray for us and we'll go. Get started. Father, we do pray um, that your voice would be with us tonight. That we would hear your words. And Lord, that we would listen. God, help us to know you in your holiness. Help us to know you in your glory. Help us to know you in our sadness and our sickness. Help us to know you in our joy and our comfort. Um, Lord, let us know you in your power and your presence. And let us know you together. God, be with us tonight. May the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I didn't have the privilege of going to Carolina as an undergrad. Uh, if I'd known how awesome it was, I probably would have applied. I don't think I would have gotten in, but I would have applied. Uh, but instead I went to a school uh, in Atlanta uh, called Emory. 
And uh, one of the one of the former teachers there a few years ago wrote a piece uh, where she talked about actually becoming a Christian while she was teaching at Emory. And her name was Elizabeth Fox Genovese. She was a women's studies professor there. And she talked about how she grew up very familiar with Christianity, but she rejected it. And eventually she became a Christian because of her experience actually as a tenured professor. And the way that she became a Christian was actually a little bit weird. Because she said she looked around at all these very intelligent people, like high caliber academic people, and they're arguing with one another all the time. And there's no authority in the midst of these people arguing to say definitively who was right and who was wrong. And Elizabeth Fox Genevieve said it was maddening because you had all these arguments essentially boiled down to this validation of a very smart, very proud person's personal prejudice and desire. And there was no way to kind of make any traction with them. And it was essentially... Very smart people saying, you know, you have your way of thinking about things. Well, I've got my way of thinking about things. And you've got your sources. I've got my sources. And no reason or argument could kind of persuade them otherwise. I don't know if you ever run into that here. I don't know. And, <laughs> and she was left thinking, you know, I really believe in my work. Like, I believe in rights for women. But if there's no absolute person above us arguing then how do I make a claim that those are real or those exist? And how do I make any kind of claims for justice or equality? It all kind of becomes an argument for forever. And this lack of authority in her field actually led her to seek a higher authority. And she became a Christian in the end. All right, hold that in your mind and think about this. On the other hand, you and I live in a country that got founded when people got together and said, you know what? I think we ought to be the ones who get to choose who rules over us. And they felt so strong about that they fought a war so there would be no more kings. And that's kind of colored the way that we approach authority. Whether it's our, par- our parents, our government, the Bible. Like We can want God to be someone that we elect over ourselves, but he's not. Do you feel the tension between that? Like, no authority leads to chaos. Elizabeth Fox Genevieve felt that. But the feeling deep down in a lot of us is that an authority over us is maybe a good idea for other people, but not me, right? But from beginning to end, one of the most common pictures that God gives us to think about him is that of a king, someone who rules. And what the Psalms do when they invite us in to know God and pray with God's people and to sing songs to God is to actually know and engage the real God that the Bible offers us, which means we have to actually know him as a king. Someone who's glorious, someone who's holy, someone who loves us too. And so I want to look at Psalm 29 tonight and ask, what does it mean that God is like a king? And I've got three brief points to make about God's kingship. I want to say, one, that he's a holy king. I want to say he's a glorious king. I want to say that he's a king who rules and serves. He's holy, he's glorious, he rules and serves. Okay, so what does it mean... That God's a holy king. Right out of the gates, this psalm starts off as saying that we should worship God because he's not like us. Because he's holy. And the word holy means different. It means set apart. God's fit to be worshipped because he's not human. He's not even angelic. We actually have a lot more in common with the angels than we do with God because at least they were created. God is not a creation. He's the creator. And so fundamentally because of who he is, he's set apart. 
And atheists like Richard Dawkins are kind of fond of saying that God is this invention of the human mind. But man, who would ever invent a God like this? When people make up gods, they make up a God that is really kind of them dressed up more powerfully or just a little bit smarter than they are. And if you pray to that God a certain amount of times or do what you need to do to kind of make him okay with you at a certain time and place, then like he owes you and you're really kind of in charge of him. That's what every other world religion is about. But this is not that kind of God. I mean, look at this psalm. He's like a storm that breaks stuff. I mean, he's coming and he's wrecking Lebanon, right? But he's also coming into Lebanon and bringing joy and new life. I mean, he, he passes by and deer are like spontaneously giving birth, right? God is wild and untamable. Look, if our qualifications for God is he thinks like you think, feels like you feel, does what you would do, like this is not that God. He is holy and we are not. I'm not trying to shame us in that, just trying to help you understand ourselves. Because we all have blind spots, right? It's kind of like, uh, if you ever watched The Office, Michael Scott uh, is so amazing, right? Because he's so awkward and says the most cringeworthy stuff. And that's part of what makes him so great, isn't it? Because he's so relatable. I mean, he's terrible because he's got these huge blind spots. But then you can love him and feel for him. I mean, it's like in the Office episode when Stanley has a heart attack. And you know when he does, and Michael rushes in there, you're like, it's going to be terrible, but you can't look away because, you know, Michael Scott's life is this train wreck. And, uh, and Michael tries mouth-to-mouth resuscitation on Stanley. And obviously it goes horribly wrong. <laughs> and later, they interview Michael in that kind of one-to-one thing in his own office. And he says, I knew exactly what to do. But in a more real sense, I had no idea what to do. Michael Scott is so relatable because that's my own life too, (laughs) y'all. We love him because he's got these huge blind spots. And sometimes you just want to step in there and be like, Michael, 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 come on, man. Like, take the temperature of the room before you do this. Think about what you're going to say. Look, when the Bible talks about God being holy and that we're not, it's trying to help us Look at our blind spots and really just know ourselves and see ourselves. It's like diagnosing us. Or like a friend that comes beside you and says, Hey, like, have you thought about this in your life? Because <laughs> like, our tendency can be, you know, I'm going to approach God because it's me and I'm great. And God does call us to approach Him. And in a certain sense, we are great because we're made in God's image. But we're also sinful. And so we can't approach Him based on who we are. Look, God's made it very clear that no one's works, no one in their person, no matter who they are, can make us right with a holy God. To expect us to do that is like dropping a boulder on a spider web and expecting the spider web to hold that boulder up. It's just not possible. The reason Christianity is about moralism is because our morality can't be the basis for a relationship with God. Think about it like this. I'm not suggesting we do this, not advertising it, just a fun thought experiment for a second. But what if somebody came down the steps while I was up here preaching and just slapped me in the face, right? (laughs) What if you just slapped me in the face? What would the consequences for that be? Very little, right? Like, ow, like, quit it. Josh, Juan, help. (laughs) Katie, Katie, help. (laughs) Um, Almost no consequences for that, right? But what if, and again, this is certainly not a suggestion, just a thought experiment, but 
the con- if you were to slap one of the higher ups at UNC, like the chancellor, like what would the consequences for that be, right? Like, do you ever come back to school? Like, probably not. Like, your tenure at UNC is over, right? Okay, move higher up the food chain. What if you were to slap the governor of North Carolina? Like, would you even get to that? Like, probably not, right? Like, I think he's got some sort of bodyguards or escorts or something like that. Like, you're, it's not going to happen. Like, the higher up the chain of commands you move, like, it becomes a bigger and bigger deal. Not a big deal to slap me. Huge deal to slap the governor. Look, when we talk about God, we're talking about a king that's above time and space and matter and energy. Like, he spoke and the world came into being. Angels worship him. He is holy. Like, when we sin, we are essentially saying, I will be king. There will be another king. I do what I want to do. And it's slapping God in the face. Like, what would the consequences for that be? Like, God is holy, holy, holy. And that's part of what it means for him to be king. Look, too, though, at the way that he's glorious here. His name has glory. His voice is glorious. When angels and people see him, they fall down and they shout, glory. Glory is this huge part of who God is. Throughout the Bible, whenever the glory of God shows up, the world actually starts to break. It's like it's too much. His glory, his weight, his gravitas is too much for reality to bear. Like Rocks start to smoke and crack. Mountains break. The sky rolls back. It's not just like clouds roll back, but the sky rolls back from God. Even very good people like Moses would die if they were to see him face to face. People are undone. When the Bible calls the seraphim, like the angels, seraphim literally means burning ones because they're so radiant and beautiful. Like here they're falling at his feet and worshiping him because of his glory. That God's glory is his brilliance, his weight, his significance rolled into one. It's kind of like a star is made of white hot plasma and the light and energy shine out from that. That holiness is part of who God is. And from God's holiness, glory radiates out. Look, there's a heaviness, isn't there? With knowing something or someone that's truly wonderful and powerful. A certain gravitas to a person, too. Like if Barack Obama or Jennifer Lawrence walked into this room right now, everybody would lose their minds, right? And like gravitate towards them, right? Why is that? Because there's something about them that just shines. There's something about them that you're drawn to. They're called stars for a reason, right? But again, those are just human beings. God's the creator of everything. How much more glory would he have than us? God's glory is something that we all want, too. There's a heaviness to glory that pulls us towards itself. You are made for glory. You long for it. But it feels like sometimes we constantly miss it, too. So many of us have come to UNC looking to squeeze glory out of the next fun thing. Kind of having it all. Perfect body, perfect resume, perfect me. And that never works out for us. You ever feel like you've got like the UNC scared duck syndrome? Like, you know what I mean when I say that? Like, a duck on the surface of a pond, if you were just like to observe it from the surface, looks smooth and calm as it goes across a lake. But if you go under the water and look, its feet are just churning the whole time, just kicking and kicking and kicking furiously. 
Like, is that you? Like, on the surface, you can look cool and collected, and underneath you're not. And you're fighting kind of furiously to keep it together. And you could say, man, that's an attitude problem. That's a fear problem. I want to suggest, I think that's a glory problem. That we want glory, we're longing for glory, we're searching for it. Trying to squeeze it out of stuff, and we're afraid that, that people will see that we're not getting it. No matter how hard we're trying. Look, I'm not saying you weren't made for glory, or that you shouldn't look for glory. What I'm saying is the glory that you were made for, to seek and to find, is not in yourself, but it's in the one true and living God. That the glory that you long for and which most satisfy your heart is not the glory of being accomplished, or even the glory of being beautiful, though you were made for that kind of glory, but the glory that you long for and which would most satisfy your heart be the glory of the face of God. Every one of us comes into the world looking for one thing. We're born into the world looking for a face. We came into the world, and in the shock and surprise of our birth, we look for a face that would tell us who we are. Because until we see a face, we have that other person look at us and really see us and know us, we don't really know who we are. The psychiatrist Kurt Thompson says that every human being, their deepest drama is that Drama of looking for someone who's looking for us. I mean, we're all in this room because a face found us and locked eyes with us and we were given a name. When no one is looking for us, that's loneliness, isn't it? And some of y'all feel that right now. What the Bible is offering is the God who's both holy and glorious is looking for you. Seeking out your face with his face. I mean, that's the great tension of the Bible, isn't it? That God is holy, and we we feel that and we withdraw from it, because we're not. Yet we were made for glory, made to be with him, and we're looking for him. And in every late night search for porn, in every frantic quest to be number one, and all your questions of when, when will I finally be with someone? When will I see that face? Do you know what you're looking for? You're not looking just for a face. You're looking for the face. To look back at you. And to find you looking at it. That throughout the Bible, whenever the glory of God shows up, the world starts to break. It's just too much for it. His glory, His weight is too much. But when God shows up as a human being... When God shows up in the person of Jesus, what happens? The world doesn't break. It's not turned upside down. Because Jesus' glory is hidden. The book of Isaiah says that he had no form or majesty that we should desire him, no beauty that we should look upon him. His glory is hidden, and yet he's a king. He says he has a kingdom. He speaks with authority. God is his father, which means he's a monarch. Paul, in the book of Philippians, is going to look at the story of Jesus and say... Jesus had the form of God, didn't hold on to it. He became a man. And not just a man, but he became a servant. Not just a servant, but he died on a cross. And because of that, God has given his glory. He's shown his glory through him. And that glory that we long for and we desire, all the nations are going to come and worship that. And see that and have what their heart has longed for. That face looking back at him. And loving them. Look, this is the scandal of the early church. 
This is the scandal of the church today. That God is holy and He's not like us. And yet His glory is not in being distant and apart from us, but His glory is actually becoming a crucified man. And this is where it really starts to rub us. Because Jesus can't be your Savior if He's not also your Lord. He's got to be both in order to save. Look, when you're hanging out with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, and you're about to make that decision about how physical you're going to get, is Jesus Lord over that? Is He Lord over your relationship and your hormones? Lord over your desire to be naked with this other person? Is it enough that you wouldn't sleep with someone even though you feel like you're committed to them and love them, but you're not married to them? Is it enough that Jesus is Lord that you wouldn't do that? Look, a lot of you have been told your whole life that real freedom comes from throwing off all the restrictions and living like you want to live, that the real you is buried somewhere deep inside of you and you've got to look inside yourself and find that person and just release them. But the truth is, is that Real freedom isn't found by looking inside of you. It's found by looking outside and finding the one that will transform you into the person that God made you to be. By finding that face, that glory looking back at you and saying, I love you. I'm for you. You are not the sum of your desires and your fears and your expectations. You're what I say about you, which is beloved, which is a child, just care for, which is royalty, because you have my status. Look, Christians serve a crucified king, which means that not only is power and glory and holiness at the heart of the universe, but so is love and mercy and forgiveness. Look, if Jesus is only a ruler, but not a savior, then you're going to be afraid of God forever. You're never going to enter the throne room and be free to worship because the sight of the true king will be terrifying to you, because you'll never live up to that kind of holiness. But if he's only a savior, not a ruler, then you're going to be lord of your own life. And you'll also never enter the throne room. Because the sight of the true king will cut too much against your own pride and authority and you just won't go in. But the good news of Christianity says that you're free to enter the throne room because this cosmic event has happened. Because the true king descended from his throne to die on your behalf. Which kills our ability to be arrogant we're callous, right? Like we're so sinful that God had to die for us. And yet God has died for us. Which means that you're so loved and forgiven that you're free to enter the most holy, most glorious places and yet not be destroyed. Because when you enter in to God's presence with faith in Christ, you enter in with the perfect, spotless standing of Jesus himself. And so Jesus, God's face looking at us, kills both fear and pride. So you can approach this kind of wild, untamable God with confidence and the assurance of His love. Which is beautiful. And so I want to end with this. Nicole, will you show that picture? Oh, there it is. Yes. Uh, Up until a few years ago, this was a painting that was owned by a family in Louisiana. And uh, the dad owned this small kind of sheet metal shop in Baton Rouge. He'd inherited it from an uncle who ran a furniture business in New Orleans, and he'd passed away a few years before. The uncle, it turns out, had bought this painting in the late 50s at an estate sale that he happened to be at in Europe when he was on vacation. And at the time, he bought this painting for about 120 bucks. And when he got home, he hung the painting up in the entryway of his house in New Orleans, and it was there for a couple of decades until he passed away, and his wife passed away, and then their 
nephew, the owner of the sheet metal shop in Baton Rouge, inherited it. And then he hung it up in his entryway in his house. And then he eventually passes away too. And when he did finally go, his kids had their own estate sale. And they sold this painting for a hefty $1,200 to a local art dealer. Which is a pretty good deal if you think about it. It was bought for 120 bucks a few decades before. Appreciates to be 10 times what it was initially sold for. They thought they had a good deal, right? Well, the art dealer that bought it had it cleaned. And the person who cleaned it was actually a pretty big expert in medieval European art. And they realized something really incredible was that this painting that had been picked up in Baton Rouge uh, was actually a long-lost masterpiece that had been painted by Leonardo da Vinci. And uh, there's only like 15 pieces of his art still in existence. And last year it sold to the crown prince of Saudi Arabia for $450 million. Which in case you're wondering is like 375,000 times more than the family in Louisiana sold it for. Yeah, that's right. Uh, The grandniece of the uncle with the sheet metal business, when she was interviewed about this, said, and I'm quoting here, that's hard to absorb. <laughs> Do you know what it means when your family heirloom gets sold for half a billion dollars to the crown prince of Saudi Arabia? It means you're never getting it back. <laughs> I mean, you know, the beauty of the gospel is that God has watched us sell our glory for next to nothing. I mean, we sell our glory for money. We sell it for sex. We sell it because we have this desire to feel like we're in control. But you know we're not really in control at all. We sell our glory for nothing. Even though it's worth everything. But in Christ, the God of glory, this wild, untamable God, has bought your glory back. And He has given you everything in Jesus. That what you lost when you gave up your glory, you've gained back tenfold in Christ. All of God's love and welcome and affection. And so you serve a king who's given you everything. Made you an heir with him. And loved you with his own son. And that's our invitation to you. To know that king. To walk with him. And to follow him in in joy and life forever. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you are our king and our Lord. God, that you rule over us. That you're not like what we would expect. You're not like what we would imagine. God, you're better than that. God, you give us yourself. You give us your son. Lord, you give us all of your love and your affection. And Lord, we don't even have a capacity to understand what that is. But that's okay with you. Lord, you give it to us anyway. Lord, bind up our hurts. Lord, care for our fears. Lord, heal our depression and our pain. Lord, be the source of our joy. God, give us everything in Jesus through his wounds and through his life. And Lord, set us free to walk with you and serve you all the days of our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.